Warehouse. My name is Dave. I am a participating member here at Warehouse. We're really glad you're here. Whether you've been coming for a long time or it's the first time. If it's the first time you're here and you're wondering where things are, I can tell you. But there was something else that came to mind. You could try to find out on your own. You could look for somebody who's walking about confidently and stop them and say, hey, do you know where fill in the blank is? You know what? They may not know. But here's the upside. You would have just had the possibility of making friends with a confident-seeming person. And that, that could last a lifetime. And eventually, I'm sure you'll find the things you need to find, but you could do it together with a friend. Okay, I'll tell you a little bit. Coffee and tea are back this way. I have to emphasize tea because I love tea, and coffee gets way, way too much press. Tea is really good for you. If you want to talk about that later, please feel free. I'll talk about it for hours. Restrooms and children are that way, or children should be eventually that way. So that, and they're not in the same place. They have separate spaces. So that, that's a little primer on things. You are coming um, to Warehouse right now in the fifth week in our series that we've called Something Else. And it's not because we don't know what to call it. It's because there, if you spend any amount of time looking at the scriptures, reading about who Jesus is, or hearing about who Jesus is, thinking about what he has done, you know that there's something else going on. There's something else about both who he is and the things that he does that, that needs to be explored. And what we've been doing over the past five weeks is exploring some of the things that Jesus has done, as recorded by one of his biographers um, in a book called John in the New Testament. There are a number of things that we've been considering looking at, at these accounts in this Gospel of John. This week we're going to be looking at an account where Jesus is, he meets up with his disciples in the midst of a storm, and he calms the storm. And it's mysterious, and it's wonderful, and there's much more going on in it than meets the eye. But at the heart of it is this idea that there is peace in the midst of a storm. And Wes is going to teach more about that, that piece. The band, in just a moment, is going to be playing a song uh, by Sufjan Stevens. And it's a song that hasn't even been released yet. It's on an album that hasn't been released. Sufjan's... Um, mother passed away in 2012 and this album in some ways is a musical eulogy it's, um, him working through some of his thoughts about his mom and uh, presumably his dad it's called Carrie and Lowell, it's the album and this song is called I can't remember the name of the song should have, I should have known better I should have known that the name of the song should have known better <laughs> But if you listen to it, you'll see that through the song, through the lyrics, even in the, the, the melody, it's Sufjan working through um, his grief, his confusion, and just seeking peace in the midst of um, a storm in his life. So, welcome to Warehouse. Getting caught in a storm can be horribly frightening. Uh, when I was in college, I took a trip to visit my brother and his wife in Alaska. And as usually the case, when my brother and I get together, we decided to do some kind of crazy adventure. Uh, this particular adventure involved flying to the little town of Eagle on the Yukon River and then canoeing 160 miles to the town of Circle. Pretty straightforward adventure. The real adventure started, though, on our flight to Eagle because we were in a small single-engine plane 
and flying over some pretty rough terrain, which normally wouldn't have been that big of a deal, but we ran into a storm. So black clouds coming at us, then we hit a wall of snow. And the pilot can see more than a few feet in front of the plane, flying entirely by instruments, and he was just about ready to risk turning around in this tight valley he was flying in when my brother spotted the Yukon River through a hole in the clouds. And so he had just enough time to do a tight bank, and he banked into this little valley that followed a tributary that went into the Yukon River, and then we followed the river to the airstrip in Eagle. <sighs> nothing, there's nothing quite like this experience of feeling totally out of control. Oh, maybe it wasn't an experience like that for you, but maybe you can imagine an experience where you just felt chaos, totally helpless, out of control, there's nothing you can do. Weird stuff happens in those kinds of moments. Like things that have been buried really far down flash to the surface. Memories and, and regrets and hopes. And if you make it through, it's exhilarating. I mean, your senses are heightened. Uh, everything seems to look different. And, and there's this sense of, oh, I get to start over now. And I think the same thing is true, not just when you experience literal storms, but when you go through other storms in life. So times when you experience deep loss or, or unexplainable suffering or just the chaos of a major life change can be a storm. It, those stormy experiences in life, they can strip you down bare. I mean, expose everything about you, feel like you're left with nothing because everything's in flux, right? In these situations, nothing's fixed. feels like things could turn out any way. I mean, it's possible in those experiences that everything could fall apart or it's possible that you could make it through and you'll be a different kind of person on the other side having experienced maybe something even more powerful and profound than, than the storm itself. That's what Sufyan is longing for in that song you just heard. Uh, it, it's ref this reflection on what he's calling my black shroud. And as Dave mentioned, it's the death of his mother in 2012. But there's more behind that story as well because his mother abandoned the family when Sufyan was just a little boy. He says three, three, maybe four. He's abandoned at the video store. Uh, and his mother suffered from depression. She was schizophrenic, alcoholic. Uh, for three summers when Sufyan was between the ages of five and eight, he spent those summers with his mother in Oregon and with his stepfather. So Carrie and Lowell is the, is the title of the album. And all of these songs, including the one you heard, is this wrestling with the loss of his mother and what that means. And it's, it's a eulogy to her. He explained in an interview with Pitchfork magazine that, quote, this album is something necessary for me to do in the wake of my mother's death, to pursue a sense of peace and serenity in spite of suffering. It's not really trying to say anything new, or prove anything, or innovate, it feels artless, which is a good thing. This is not my art project. This is my life. It's pretty bold. In the song that you heard, he expresses regret and anxiety and hopelessness. And he says, I'm frightened by my feelings. I just want to be relieved. And so he's looking for anything that he can latch onto to find that peace, uh, little glimpses of beauty like, like that hole in the clouds, anything that can keep him going. And I don't know if you noticed, but in this song he mentions, but my brother has, has a daughter. She's beautiful. Illumination. 
So for him, that's that moment where he finds something. Hopefully it can get, it, get him through the storm. But there's this other refrain, too, where we don't really know who he's talking to. He's just saying, be my rest, be my fantasy, be my best. It's this prayer for someone or something to be his peace in the midst of that storm. And that raises the question for us. To what or to whom do you look to in order to have peace in the midst of any of life's storms? And is that kind of peace even possible? That's what we need to wrestle with today. Before exploring that some more, I want to read about an actual storm recorded in three of the biographies of Jesus. They're found in the Newer Testament. The account of the storm in John's biography is, is the shortest one. So it's recorded in John, Mark, and Matthew. Mark and Matthew add some details, but they're telling the same story, just from three different perspectives and highlighting details that fit in with their way of telling the story. I want to read John's, and it's in John 6, starting in verse 16. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. And they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The Sea of Galilee, where the disciples were rowing across, it's a massive lake in the Middle East. It's about seven miles across, probably, where they were doing their rowing. It gets to about 150 feet deep. As you see, it's surrounded by hills. So when a storm whips up, it's a real storm. It becomes a cauldron in there. And I think the worst storm recorded in the last couple decades, there were 10-foot waves that hit the town of Tiberias, which is just down there. So this is not a lake that you want to be stuck out in the middle of in a 25-foot boat without life vests and without cell phones and other safety gear and radios. And this is exactly the situation that the disciples were in. They've been rowing with this nasty headwind all evening into the night. So they're almost exactly in the middle of the lake when this happens, three or three and a half miles out in the middle when the bad storm hits. It's probably something like Rembrandt imagined as he painted the storm on the Sea of Galilee. I actually based this painting on another account of Jesus in a, in a storm with his disciples where he was in the boat. But very similar situation, same lake, same kind of storm. And I love showing this Rembrandt painting because it's the only seascape he did. Rembrandt's one of my favorite artists. And I think it captures just the, the fear and the chaos of the moment. Unfortunately, you can't see that in person anymore. It was part of one of the, you know, the largest art heist in U.S. history where people stole 12 paintings from a gallery in, in Boston. But you can see it on the screens at least. And I don't think that this painting exaggerates the situation at all. I mean, these are guys scared out of their mind. The boat could capsize at any moment. It's intense. Add into that this experience of seeing a ghostly figure coming toward them through the swells of the waves. I mean, this doubles their anxiety, right? They don't know who it is at first. I mean, imagine being in that situation and what you would think. Here's one of the details that Mark and Matthew adds in. They say, it's a ghost. They don't know. It's a ghost, and John doesn't record it, um, but they see this ghost, it comes closer, they're probably clutching to anything for dear life, probably each other, 
cowering down, and then the figure moves close enough for them to hear these first, first words. He says, Ego eimi, Greek phrase. I have to admit, when I first heard this phrase back in seminary, I could not help but think of Ego waffles. Uh, and, you know, those commercials way back when, Lego my Ego. So every, which is really tragic now that this famous identity statement of Jesus is linked to frozen waffles in my mind. Um, and now it's for you too, I'm really sorry. If it helps you remember, then hey, it's good. So, ego me. it's a Greek phrase. It's most often translated like the passage where I read, uh, it is I. But literally, it means I am. I am who I am. Anyone familiar with the Hebrew Older Testament, that would have clicked. That would have popped out more than some sort of annoying frozen waffle commercial. And they would have known what was going on. Because many, year, many years earlier, when God spoke to Moses through a burning bush, telling him he was going to be the one to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses asked him a really important question. He said, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. So when Moses is asking God his name, his first response is this enigmatic, I am. I am the same God who created the heavens and earth. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am is my name. So when this ghostly figure appears out of nowhere, floating across the sea, and the first thing out of his mouth is, Ego me, I am, the disciples didn't hear, Hey, it's me, Jesus. You know, that, that's not what they're hearing. They're hearing, It's me, I am. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God who created this sea. It's Jesus, I am. That's what they're hearing. And this isn't some sort of mistake in how they recorded this because other, er, other times Jesus taught, he used the same phrase. And, and this explains why the Jews got so riled up by Jesus' teaching because he was making these kind of claims. Like in John eight fifty eight, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why the stones? Because either Jesus is blaspheming God, claiming to be the, the creator God himself, and, and that is, is a penalty, the penalty for that is stoning. Or he is really God, really the I am, and he is rightfully claiming that name in this moment. So when the disciples hear that, ego me. They knew. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what they were experiencing, but think, they hear that, and they have just seen this figure walking across the water. They would have linked the two and known this is the God who created the sea. This is I am approaching us. It's Jesus. And then another sign, Jesus steps into the boat, the storm stops. John doesn't record that detail, but Mark and Matthew do. 
And then this fascinating thing at the end as well uh, that John writes. He says, immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. And we don't know if this was another miracle or what. Remember, they're in the middle of the lake, so this seems kind of strange. The disciples suddenly found themselves on dry ground. They're, they're at peace. They're at rest. They're amazed at what's just happened. I think there's a reason John includes this. He loves to make references back to the Old Testament to help us connect these things. That's what he's doing here, I think, because in Psalm 107, it's a psalm that the Jewish people have been singing for centuries about the power of the Creator God. He's linking his telling of the story to that psalm very intentionally, so we cannot mistake who Jesus is. I want to read a section from that psalm so you see it. The psalm begins this way. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. And then several stories later, it says, Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, His wonderful deeds in the deep. For He spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. Here's what's going on. All of the actions of the creator God praised in Psalm 107 are the same exact actions of Jesus in John 6. Very intentional link, which for anyone who hears this story and for the disciples who were in that moment meant worship him. This is God. The great I am who has come to give you peace in the midst of the storm. This is the fifth sign that John mentions in his biography of Jesus. We've looked at four so far in the series. Each of these signs, each of these miraculous events is pointing to something else about who Jesus is, each one building a portrait of that as we go along. So we're starting to see that this isn't just Jesus of Nazareth. This isn't just Jesus, son of Joseph. This isn't even just Jesus, the great prophet. This is Jesus, I am the divine son of God. And at the same time, what each sign is doing is it's showing another dimension of his mission, why he came, why God is here in the flesh among them. In the previous four signs, we've seen in various ways that it's Jesus working out God's ultimate mission to make all things new so that um, he's leading people to experience God's abundance and God's unconditional love and unexpected mercy and provision. So what's the color and depth added here? What are we encouraged to see about Jesus and about his mission with this sign? And that brings us around to where we started. So I think what the sign is doing, besides pointing to the identity of Jesus, is it's revealing that part of Jesus' mission was to make it possible to experience peace in the midst of life storms. I know that many of you have a stormy past, a past that brings that hurricane right into the present, uh, and maybe a, a present that is equally stormy that 
either has, has patches of rest in it or just feels like constant whirlwind stuff. And the last thing I would want to do, given that reality of our lives, is, is point you this morning to some cliches, some, some platitudes that you could, you could say just to make you feel better. Uh, statements that don't really bear the weight of that reality, stuff that's real. I don't know, maybe you've heard people say things like that, cliches that you think maybe should be true, but, but they hurt on a deeper level. Things like, it, it, it'll all work out. It'll work out for you. You know, you just need to, need to grin and bear it right now because you, you'll get through it. You'll manage. Well, I mean, okay, what if the storms don't go away? What then? Right? What if, what if the past just keeps whipping into your present and causing that storm to, to increase. You know, are those cl- cliches going to bear the weight of that reality? Doubt it. I think the sign we looked at today in John 6 points to a truth that is so much deeper than what those cliches are trying to get at. This Jesus walking on the water, stilling the storm, bringing his disciples to their, their destination, it is first and foremost a sign that God is with us in the storms. And it is that reality that leads to peace. Before explaining that a little bit more, I think it's important to realize this this idea of God with us in storms is the complete opposite of most other religions. Most world religions identify God as someone who's, who's above the storms, right? outside of the chaos and, and the suffering of the world. And if you desire to experience peace or, or, or closeness with God, you basically have two different options. You can be a good person so that one day you'll get to wherever God is, heaven or whatever, and so you'll experience peace there eternally, all the rest. Or you're too attached to stuff in this earth. And the less attached you are, the less suffering will cause you pain, um, the more that you're able to experience peace, nirvana, mindfulness. Two main options in world religions. Christianity is radically different. Now, I don't believe that either earthly escape as our ultimate goal or earthly detachment are satisfying at all. I, I find them completely unsatisfying ways to to experience fullness of life now and to have adequate hope for the future. I believe that Christianity offers an entirely different perspective and approach. And the radical claim is that God himself entered into the chaos of the world and got battered by the same storms that batter us. And he remains in them to this moment. The peace that that offers, totally different level. Because it's not going to be a peace that attempts to avoid storms because that's a part of life. It's not going to be a kind of peace that that tries to explain storms away and, and, and think they're an illusion or something. It's God is with you. This storm is real. God's presence is real. Peace is possible because of that. And the peace that he makes available is then closely tied to hope. 
Because if life now means storms, there's also hope that God can and will bring us out of them. That there is a day where he promises to make all things new and that can break into the present, but it's moving us toward a future that we long for. So all of this really struck me when I was uh, singing with Eden the other day, and we like to do this when we can, ask her what she wants to sing. She said, I want to do the Jesus in the Boat one. Do you guys know this song? Those of you who have kids and like to sing silly songs with them. Okay, so it goes, here it goes, my best. <clears throat> with Jesus in the boat, you can smile in the storm, smile in the storm, smile in the storm. And then as you go, you drop out words. So it ends up with, in the, you can, in the, in the. Thank you. I will will join the band next week. (laughs) Well, so here's the thing about that. I would would dare to bet when you heard me sing that, you're like, ah, it's one of those cliches, right? Jesus in the boat, you can smile in the storm. I mean, maybe maybe that's okay for kids. But for adults, I mean... By the way, I have a problem with that whole idea that what is okay for kids, you know, wouldn't be okay for adults, and that's another talk. So, um, I guess you could use a a song like that as a cliche. I don't think this is, and part of it is where it's coming from. It, it's from a line in a song by John Newton, who was born into an English sailing family in 1725, and by the time he was 11, he was already going with his father on sailing missions around the Mediterranean. Uh, And by the time he was 18, Newton was a midshipman on a slave boat in West Africa. Several years in the slave trade, which he later described as absolutely horrible. Um, He was marauded on an island for a couple years as well, where he basically was treated like a slave by his captain. And so after several years of, of this, being in the slave trade, being marauded, He was heading back to England, and he barely survived. A massive storm killed half the crew. He was actually swept off deck, but he held onto a rope, and so he survived. It was one of those storms, literally, that at at the end of it, as he got through, it changed him. He said, this isn't how I want to live. There is a different way. And when he returned to England, after a while, he became one of the most ardent supporters of the abolition, right alongside William Wilberforce, He became an Anglican priest and the writer of hundreds of songs and hymns, including that one, and uh, maybe most famously, Amazing Grace, and hundreds of others. Now, if anyone can talk about smiling in a storm with Jesus in the boat, it's John Newton. And I would claim that, that this is John Newton or anybody else, this is actually a reality, that there can be a different experience of storms because God is with us. A different experience of storms because there is a God who entered them and experienced them and was battered for us. Because Newton isn't saying, you know, just grin and bear it. You'll get through it. Or, you know, the, the storm isn't, isn't real. Pretend things aren't so bad and things will get better. No, he's saying you can actually experience freedom from fear. That kind of smile. Not but deep contentment, peace, rest. Because Jesus is with you and his presence is able to bring that kind of peace. 
It's not the kind of peace that we can muster up on our own with special techniques, although, of course, those things can help. This is, this is God's presence and God's peace as gift, sheer gift to us. And we receive it, we experience it as gift, so that, not that our storms can disappear, but that we can actually weather those storms by grace and not by grit. So let's pray together. God, we live in a world that is racked with violence and anxiety. And we feel that internally. Uh, we feel it and we see it in, in our homes. We see it in our city. We see it in the world. And we're just sick of it. We're tired of it. Um, I think it's good to acknowledge as well that often we're a part of it. So I want to start by asking you, God, to forgive us for the ways that we have contributed to violence, contributed to unrest because of our clamoring to be first or best or whatever. And Lord, have mercy on us for all the ways that we experience storms simply because we live in this broken world, this fallen world. We long for it to be made new. We long for that to happen now. We, won't rec- we recognize that it's not going to happen until you return, so we long for that. In the meantime, we hold tight to this reality that you have entered these storms, that you know them, that you've experienced them, that you've, you've conquered them, you've entered that thick mess of our humanity and our sin, and you've said no more to the brokenness. And because of that, and because you died and rose again, we know that these storms aren't our final reality. There's more. And that you are with us, and because of that, you have made peace available as a gift. Thank you for this gift that's available now, and we ask for more of that and to cling to your promises for the future. And as we experience more and more of your peace, pray as well that you would make us peaceable people, people who spread that peace wherever we go, whomever we talk, and whatever we do. And it's in your name, the great I am, that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with me if you're able, and I'll send you out with some words. This is from Philippians 4. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, all about joy and peace in the midst of suffering. So I think these words are appropriate for us from Philippians 4. Receive this benediction. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Go in grace.